Tonight we continue in our study of Paul's instructions concerning the armor of God. We've seen to this point, though we've been born again of God, we still have this evil spiritual enemy in this life. And we must put on this armor of God that God has provided us. If we don't, we're not going to be able to successfully repel this demonic enemy. We know that the devil has been defeated by Christ at the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities at the cross. He limited what he can do by his death and resurrection. Satan can no longer stop the spread of the gospel. That's why we're still here 2,000 years later, spreading the gospel. At the same time, as Peter wrote, and, and Peter wrote this in the 60s, so it wasn't like, you know, he, he was just writing this in the first days of the church. In the 60s, he wrote, the devil is still prowling about, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to destroy the work of Christ, and he in particular wants to destroy the work of Christ in us. He seeks to take all humanity, including those who've been born again, with him to hell. Now, that's what's going on for real in the world. You know, the world, people think that the real world is, is things only of this earth. But what's going on is a demonic being trying to take people to hell with him. He seeks to cause us to doubt the Word of God. This is what's happened to those people that we were reading about earlier tonight. They doubt the Word of God now. He seeks to cause people in the churches even to fall away from the faith. This is all the work of Satan. False teaching is the work of Satan. False religions are all the work of Satan. And he uses all different means, all of them ways of deception usually, to try to stir unbelief in us. He tries to stir anger in us, hatred, bitterness, toward one another, toward God. He uses deceptive strategies. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Remember, Eve didn't recognize the serpent as Satan, as the devil who was trying to kill her. And whether we like it or not, we're in this war. We're in this spiritual war. So we must equip ourselves for this spiritual warfare. Paul reminds us, we're not fighting against men. Our struggles against what he says are all the evil forces of darkness. Rulers, powers, principalities, authorities. Spiritual forces which from the time of the Garden of Eden and under God's permission now rule in this world. Hear what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Remember, the devil inhabits a spiritual realm, but he reigns in this world. And our present conflict is with us on the earth and with him in the spiritual realm and with all his demons. They reside in the spiritual realm, but they war with us here on earth. We can't see them, but they're there and they are at war with us. And every time you see a false religion, a false teaching, this is Satan. This is satanic. When you see the whole 
culture turning to all manner of sin, to legalizing of sin. I mean, what is our culture about now but sex and gambling? They've legalized drugs in most of this country now. This is all the work of Satan. Tear down a culture. Tear down the family. He's after us. Now, we've seen the truth. We know the truth. We've professed the truth. So now he takes a different angle. Try to use our own lusts. He tries to use our own discontentments. None of us has a perfect life. He tries to use other humans, friendly humans, to try to entice us away from Christ. So Paul says here, verses 13 and 14, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist, to stand your ground in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Now he says stand firm three times here, just in these two verses. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins in truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to be the subjects of unrelenting attacks from Satan, and they're going to be particular times, particular attacks of Satan, particular temptations where he seeks to exploit weaknesses in us. And we all have weaknesses in our personalities. He'll seek to appeal to our pride, to our fleshly desires, to our envy of others maybe, to our dissatisfaction with our circumstances. He'll seek to even appeal to our dissatisfaction with what's going on in the world to stir in us responses that are not godly. And, and you know, we see, we see politicians who we know are ungodly. And how do we respond? He seeks to evoke hatred in us and evil thoughts in us toward those who we perceive as our enemies and those who actually are our enemies and God's enemies. And he'll attack when we don't expect it. So we have to. We really have to at all times be prepared for his attacks. And the only weapons that are of any use are the ones Paul lists for us here. Human weapons are of no use to us. We need to use spiritual weaponry. have to take it up and put it on. Those who prepare themselves by availing ourselves of this full armor, who rest in His power, we will not fail. We won't fail. So last week, we began to look at the, some of this defensive armor that God has provided us. First thing He said was to gird our loins with truth. This piece of armor, truth, this is foundational to all the others. If we don't have the truth, we are without hope. And this is what we see when people drift away from the faith. They don't have the truth girding their loins. They don't have the truth as a belt around their waist. God's provided us with this truth. People don't put it on. John 17, 17, Jesus is praying to His Father in the night before He dies, and He tells us what the truth is. He says, Your word, Father, is truth. So that's what truth is. So believers are strengthened against Satan by the truth. Truth is a weapon. Certainly it's a defensive weapon. The truth is all that God has spoken in His Word. That's the truth. The gospel is truth. 
And we must take up this truth. You know, we can't just let it sit there and say, yes, I know that's true. It's got to become part of us, part of how we think, part of how we live. And when we take up the truth of God, we will begin to reflect that truth in our lives. His truth is what transforms us. We don't get transformed by our intellectual knowledge of God. We get transformed by our taking this truth into our hearts, by being taught by the Holy Spirit, teaching our spirit. His truth is what teaches us and enables us to lay aside the old man and put on the new man. Paul's theme really hasn't changed throughout this letter. God has been gracious to us. We should live in a manner worthy of His grace and what He's done for us. And we should take up that truth and use it to protect ourselves. When we take up His truth and it becomes part of us, it'll help us to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. And if we don't have the truth, if we don't live trusting in the truth, we've not made His truth the ruling principle of everything we do. We're going to be defenseless against Satan. So this is our first and absolutely necessary defense against the deceptions of the enemy. Now second, in here in verse 14, we must take up and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now you read a phrase like that, what's it mean to us? What do we think when we read this? Well, Paul's language here like the language about girding our loins with truth, is drawn from Isaiah, Isaiah 59, 17. Yahweh puts on the breastplate of righteousness as He comes to deliver His people and punish His enemies. He puts on a righteousness like a breastplate. And, you know, the Roman soldier wore a breastplate, a piece of armor covering his chest to protect it against blows and arrows. And so that's the illustration that both Isaiah and Paul use here. In short, believers must put on the breastplate of righteousness if we are to stand firm against Satan. So we better know what this is. What's he talking about? Do you think this word righteousness is a significant word in the New Testament? How many times do you suppose we see this word in the New Testament? Righteousness. 27 books. It's 90. 90 times this word shows up. We see this word presented to us in, when it speaks of the moral perfection of God. We see it presented to us as illustrating or speaking of the perfect obedience of Christ in His humanity, which obedience is imputed, credited to the believer through faith. When a spiritually dead sinner is made spiritually alive, he's given the gift of faith, belief in the saving truth, he's justified before God. He's declared righteous before God. He receives Christ's righteousness. And third and finally, Scripture calls us to live righteously. So which of these is Paul speaking about here? Anybody have any thoughts? When Paul tells us to do this, to put on the breastplate of righteousness, I believe he's telling us to put on the righteousness of Christ which has been credited to us, but he's also telling us to live in a righteous and godly way. It's both. I believe there's aspects of both in what he's saying here. 
And the only way to gain an understanding of this is to go to Scripture and look at how the Bible speaks of righteousness. And in particular, for our purposes here, what Paul says about it. As I said, I've got a lot of Scriptures, and I'm just going to start through them. There's some basic principles that are taught in Scripture. Acts 17.31, Jesus will return, and He's going to judge the world in what? In righteousness. All men are born in unrighteousness. All men are born in sin. Psalm 51, Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, I'm going to go right to the end here and tell you what, what happens at the end. I think you all know. Peter wrote, 2 Peter 3.13, According to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this new heavens and new earth in which we will reside with God forever will be a place in which righteousness dwells. Now here's the problem. We don't have any righteousness in ourselves. And there's going to be a judgment based on righteousness. So David's correct. We're brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. By nature, Paul writes, Ephesians 2, 3, we are children of wrath. And apart from a supernatural work of God, all men remain in a state of unrighteousness. Guilty before God. Unless God does a work in us, we will live our entire lives and go to the grave guilty before God, condemned before Him. And during our life, we are, of ourselves, utterly incapable of doing anything to change our unrighteous standing before God. This is the falsehood of all other religions. They say, do this, and you can be declared righteous. That's not true. We're incapable of changing our nature, which is unrighteous, and we're incapable of doing anything to change our legal standing before God. So apart from a divine work of God, and why people would sneer at the idea of the grace of God as our only way of salvation has always been lost on me. Apart from a divine, gracious work of God, we remain in sin, unrepentant, and in a state of condemnation. Here's what the Scripture says. Romans 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart... You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Okay. You're unrepentant. You're storing up wrath. There's going to be a righteous day of judgment and you are going to be condemned. Verse 8, To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for the soul of every man who does evil. This is a problem because we're unrighteous. And we can't make ourselves righteous. Paul writes, Romans 3.10, quoting the psalm, there is none righteous, not even one. Well, we must understand, because we're being told, put on this breastplate of righteousness, and we don't have righteousness. Because no man is righteous, no man can save himself by his own works. You can't do it. Now, there's a church down the street says you can. Here's what you do. Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. 
No flesh will be declared righteous. That's what justified means, declared righteous. In his sight, for through the law comes not justification, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Law shows us that we're sinners. But, here's the good news. Because of the grace and mercy of God, he made a way of rescue from condemnation. And that was to credit those chosen in his Son, chapter 1, verse 3, and following, with his righteousness. If you've been born again and are in faith, you have been credited with the very righteousness of Christ. God will see you as he sees Christ, as a righteous person. Romans 3.21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets foretold that there would be a way for men to be declared righteous by God. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, as was told in the Old Testament, by the righteousness of God, given through faith in Christ for all who believe. All who believe are credited as though they were righteous people. And he says there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as something we earn, what's he say? Being justified as a gift. Faith, a gift, justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Christ saved us, brethren. He earned our justification. He earned for us a declaration that we are righteous before God. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. Let's drink that in. He didn't save us on the basis of any righteous deeds we did, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So we add that up, and what do we have? No man has any righteousness of his own, Righteousness, the declaration by God that one has right standing before him, can't be earned by any sinful man. It can only be received as a gift from God. You ask me, why don't people want a God such as this? I don't have a good answer, other than Satan deceives them. Romans 4.3 For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Where do we read that in the Old Testament? Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This wasn't some new thing when Christ came. Believing God was always the way to a declaration of righteousness. And then Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Any ungodly here? Everybody raise your hand. He justifies the ungodly. He says, I declare you righteous. The one who believes in him, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as, as he did with Abraham. 
Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Here's what David said. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Galatians 3.6, Paul again quotes Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now we're trying to understand here, how are we going to put on a breastplate of righteousness? How are we going to do this exactly? We don't have any. We've had Christ's righteousness credited to us. So how do we get this righteousness? How does a person get it? How does it come to him? Romans 1, 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in it, the power of God for salvation is revealed. Romans 1, 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. From faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man lives by faith. Quoting Habakkuk. So how can this be? How can this be that we are declared righteous by God? What did we do to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. So Adam, as we see in Romans 5, he's what we call the federal head. He's the representative of all humanity means he stood as our representative before God. When he disobeyed God, because he was the representative of all humanity, all humanity fell with him. All humanity was separated from God. And all come into this world spiritually dead. Remember what David said. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me because of Adam's sin. So we come into this world standing condemned as children of wrath. Christ came into the world, the second Adam, and he did what Adam failed to do. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And do you understand the Father looks at us as though we have lived an entire life in perfect obedience to him. That is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. Romans 5.17, Paul addresses all this. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Christ. Adam brought death, Christ brings life. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. If we could have been righteous by our own obedience, why would Christ have needed to die? Well, he wouldn't have. If righteousness could come through the law in this Torah business, you see the problem here. Righteousness can't come through the law. If it does, then Christ didn't have to die. This is the wickedness of that belief that we go back to the law of Judaism. So that's the teaching of Scripture regarding the righteousness of Christ, the unrighteousness of all men, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness 
to God's elect, to ungodly sinners through the gift of faith. But there's another side of righteousness in Scripture, and in particular in the New Testament. Because in Scripture, righteousness is also sometimes used to refer to righteous qualities in a man who has been born again. And while no man has the perfect obedience, the perfect righteousness necessary to merit eternal life or to save himself, a man must have some righteous qualities in him. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, therefore, this is verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. So you've died with Christ. You've been born again. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So don't go presenting our bodies to whom? To God as instruments of unrighteousness. Our bodies should no longer be used for unrighteous purposes. But, Paul says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and present your members, the members of your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. We were all in this place where sin was our master, where we were under the power and the dominion of Satan and sin. When God makes us spiritually alive and brings us into union with the risen and ascended Christ, we're no longer slaves of sin. Here's what he says, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms, Paul says, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. This is the process of sanctification. So we're to present our bodies. We're to live as righteous people now. Philippians 1.9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This fruit of righteousness comes from Christ. And Hebrews 12, 11, the writer tells us that all discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is what discipline, godly discipline, is all about. He says that for the moment, this discipline doesn't seem joyful, seems sorrowful, yet for those who've been trained by it, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Paul encouraged Timothy to pursue righteousness three times in those last two letters. 1 Timothy 6, 11. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. 2 Timothy 3.16, 
You know, we, we think of this verse and it talks about the usefulness and the validity of all of the Word of God, but we read the whole verse. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And then what's the fourth thing? For training in righteousness. He's starting to see now this breastplate of righteousness that we are called to put on to fight off Satan. Training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And then 1 Peter 2.24. There's Peter. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross. Why? So that we might die to sin. Lay aside the old man, put on the new man, and live to righteousness. So we're called to live righteous, godly lives. So the born-again believer is one who has been cleansed of his sin, has been justified before God. We stand not guilty. He looks past our sins. He will remember our sins no more. The born-again believer has been declared righteous before God. Jesus' perfect obedience in His humanity has been credited to us. You see the, the magnitude of that blessing. All through the instrument of faith, which itself is a gift of God. I don't know why people don't want to give God credit for the grace and mercy He's shown us. Folks, we're no longer slaves of sin. We're freed from its power. We've become slaves of righteousness. We long to do righteousness. Paul says we must present our bodies now to God in this life as slaves of righteousness. And so, in taking up and putting on the breastplate of righteousness, we do not want to set aside either the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to the believer, or the call to live righteously. He's talking about the righteousness that has been imputed to us, but he's also speaking of the righteousness of Christ working in us. You know, he doesn't just declare us not guilty and send us home, come back when it's time. No, let that righteousness that I've imputed to you work in you, just as the truth works in you. So when Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, this has both applications for us. Why do we need God's declaration of our righteousness as a piece of armor against Satan? What's that got to do with Satan? Well, who is Satan? What's he called in Scripture that might necessitate we knowing that we are declared righteous before God? And? And? He's also the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us of sin and unrighteousness before both God and men. Can you think of anyone in Scripture that Satan accused of being unrighteous before God. Job, chapter 1, verse 8. Now listen to this, because this is what he does. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Haven't you made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But you put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. What was Satan saying? That's right. He's accusing Job of just belief on the basis of fulfillment of the lusts of his flesh. Zechariah 3.1, we have another one. God showed him. He said, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So Satan accuses us. Now, what form would that accusation take for us? How do we perceive that accusation? Doubt? You ever doubt? You don't have to raise your hands. You ever wonder, man, am I really saved? Where do you suppose that comes from? Somebody saying to you, see, your faith isn't good enough. Your works aren't good enough. God could never accept you. And we know we don't deserve what God has blessed us with. So it's for Satan, for the great deceiver, is it that far a road? But that's what he does. So this assurance that we have, that we have a right standing before God, is the defense against that accusation from him, against doubt. One more, Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. There again, all these names, all four of them, who deceives the whole world. He's thrown down to earth, his angels thrown down with him. Heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he accuses them before our God day and night. Don't think it's not happening. Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He can't bring a charge against you. In other words, until you were born again, until you had faith, Satan could go before God and say, you, this one is guilty. He deserves hell. Would he be right? He would have been right. Now, he goes before God and says, they're no different than Job. What's God say? The Lord rebuke you. He can no longer accuse us. You see, because we have this breastplate of righteousness, we have this assurance. No righteousness of our own could be a defense against that accusation. If we did not have the righteousness of Christ, Satan could accuse us and he'd be right. We would still stand condemned before God. Apart from Christ, we have no righteousness of our own. But the declaration of righteousness that we've received from God as a gift is a perfect defense against any accusation that we are not heirs of eternal life. That's a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Satan can no longer accuse us of unrighteousness as he accused Job wrongly, as he accused Joshua the priest, and because of that 
declaration of God, of our right standing before Him, God will always refute that accusation. Put it on. Take it up and put it on. Know it. Devil will accuse you when you sin, when you pray. At the time that death approaches, he'll accuse you. He'll try to shake your belief that you have a right standing before God. You keep this breastplate of righteousness of Christ because it's a full and complete defense. A term we used to use in the law. It's a complete defense. Case is over. But second, righteousness is now at work within us. All who have been born again are now slaves of righteousness. So, how does this relate to this breastplate? We must now live in righteousness. Not that we might merit salvation, but because it's the only right response to the gifts of God that we have received. Do you suppose that living a righteous life, living in a godly manner, will help to defend you against temptation? You know, it's really pretty simple, isn't it? If we live righteously, we're going to be less prone to sin. Believer's appropriation of Christ's righteousness through faith will help him to think and to speak and live godly in Christ. To act righteously, though not in perfect righteousness. But we're talking about defending against Satan in this spiritual warfare. Righteous living, godly living, Bringing forth the fruits of the Spirit in our thoughts, and our words, and our lives will provide a strong and effective piece of armor against Satan's attacks. When we live in righteousness, when we're in the word of truth, we'll see his attacks for what they are. We'll see temptation for what it is. We will be better equipped to resist temptation. And this understanding that the idea of a breastplate of righteousness includes a righteousness that is now working in us through the gift of Christ. It's in line with what Paul's been teaching us here. What he said back in 424, take off the old man. Put on the new man, which he said, which in the likeness of God has been created in what? Anybody remember? In righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new man has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And this understanding is also in line with what Paul exhorted us to do in chapter 5, verse 1, where he said, become imitators of God. Those who are imitators of God live righteously. The Apostle John affirms all of this. 1 John two twenty nine. If you know that he is righteous you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Those who practice righteousness are born of God. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. What a great verse this is. To destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one who is born of God practices sin. He's not saying no one who's born of God ever sins. Practices sin is the word here. Lives a sinful life. Because his seed, Christ's seed, abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So clearly, Paul's telling us, look, you've received this blessed declaration of justification before God. Now you start living righteously. And those two things will protect you against the wiles and deceptions of Satan. Finally, Revelation 22, 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Nearly the very last words in all of Scripture. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. So, in this epistle, especially since the beginning of chapter 4, Paul has been placing great emphasis on living in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called by God. This is an effective piece of armor against the deceptions and accusations of Satan, living a righteous life. And we have some great examples of men who, having received the grace of God, lived in righteousness. Hebrews 11.32 And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith, by faith, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. The breastplate of righteousness is protection provided by our assurance of our right standing before God and of our living in a godly life. And finally, two little passages, Philippians 3.8. Here's what Paul wrote. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and Count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Well, we'll stop there for tonight. We've received an amazing gift, the righteousness of Christ, and it is to be a transforming gift. We read the Scriptures, we hear the Word preached, and that is where the transforming power is imparted and conveyed, not by people, but by the Spirit of God. Let's take a moment and... uh, Briefly reflect on the things the Lord's taught us tonight and then we'll close in prayer. Lord, we acknowledge our unworthiness. We acknowledge our unrighteousness. We acknowledge our need for 
the grace and mercy that you have chosen to bestow on us. Lord, we want to pray for all of those who've come in and out of churches throughout this community over the recent years. And Lord, we want to pray for those who've just fallen away in in different ways. We want to pray, Lord, and ask that you would, by your Spirit, bring conviction of the truth to those lost in false religions and false beliefs. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, your truth. And Lord, we thank you that you've called us to be your children. May we, in every hour, be grateful and stand in awe before you for what you've done. In Christ's name, amen.